Get ready to be inspired by the great things happening in rural education. The Rural Scoop will bring you new ideas and innovative solutions, will dive into education issues, and will highlight what's working in your rural communities. You will hear from a variety of educators, administrators, professionals, and others who will provide relevant and engaging content in each episode. And now, serving up the scoop, here's your host, Dr. Melissa Sadorf. Uh, thank you, Rural Scoop listeners, for joining me. I'm excited to be able to talk with Dr. John White and Dr. Dreema Gentry about some opportunities for rural students across the United States. We'll be discussing the critical need for providing post-secondary opportunities for rural students and some of the ways that those opportunities are being provided. John and Dreema, are you ready to give us the scoop? I'm ready. I think we have a good conversation coming. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, first, before we get started, can you give our listeners a bit of uh, information about you and your background? And Dreema, let's start with you. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I grew up in Appalachian, Kentucky, which is in eastern Kentucky. I went to a rural small school, and I'm the first in my family to graduate um, from college. I came here to Berea College, where I work now. Um, graduated from Berea, went on to law school and practiced law for a few years until I realized that really my passion was working back in Appalachia and that education for me had broken that barrier of generational poverty. And I really wanted to work on educational opportunities for all students. So I'm back here at Berea College uh, doing this work. Fantastic. Thank you for being here. John, introduce us to you. Sure. So um, I actually, I went to a land-grant university, University of Maryland. I grew up in a small town called Huntingtown in Southern Maryland, Calvert County, which at the time was very rural, mostly farmland. Uh, it's become a bedroom community for Washington, D.C. in recent years. But um, I started out as a journalist. So I, I uh, started out writing for newspapers and covering everything from sports to county council to education at times. But then there was a point in my career where I had to decide whether I wanted to chase newspaper jobs around the country or, or, or really find something closer to home. I was lucky to land in a school district, and that's where my education uh, in school districts began. Worked for a couple of school districts, was chief of staff at the Maryland State Department of Education, and then I had the absolute privilege and honor of serving as the deputy assistant secretary for rural outreach in the United States Department of Education during the Obama administration. That was an adventure. It was, uh, it was a privilege to work with uh, Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan, travel to 42 states in four and a half years, learn from rural school principals, superintendents, teachers, higher education leaders. And I met Dreema Gentry along the way and saw the fascinating work she's doing as well and her passion for helping rural kids actually enroll and complete college degrees, which is something that we both believe is very important. If we're going to develop the talents and the skills that uh, rural youth need to contribute to their communities and help their communities continue to sustain themselves and grow, um, even revitalize some rural communities, they have to, we have to have the skills and the talent in those communities to, to keep them going. One thing I didn't know that I learned along the way is that rural students ages 18 to 29 are the least likely to enroll in college or earn a degree. And I think that has negative impacts that we need to turn around. 
so that we can help them um, invest and contribute to the future of their communities. So thanks for having us for this conversation. Well, thank you both again for being here. Um, John, before we get started into the questions, can I ask you if that number, the 18 to 29 are the least likely to enroll, is that a current trend or is that something that's traditionally been an issue for rural students? So that is a, um, a trend that's been continuing for quite some time. And um, if you look on the, the National Center for Education Statistics, they will show you over time that number has been pretty steady, even, even increased in a negative way. So we need to do all we can to let uh, rural students and their families know that college is for them and that it's actually the place where you can learn skills and trades and other things that are needed to contribute to, their, to your community. So let's dive into that a little bit, uh, John. Can you tell me about the rural-urban divide in the United States when it comes to secondary education enrollment and graduation? Absolutely. So this is something that really came to light in the last presidential election where rural America kind of stood up and said, we want your attention and we need, uh, we need some solutions. And so if you think about rural, the rural-urban divide, kids living in urban and suburban areas might be able to walk down the street to the library, or they might be able to, to go into Starbucks quickly and jump on Wi-Fi. Right. Um, those opportunities are not as easily available in many rural places. In fact, there may not be a library or a Starbucks in their community. The school is the hub and the center of, of many rural communities. And it's a place where community life takes place. It's the, it's the place where decisions are made and where resources are available. So there's a real need to invest in rural schools in order to sustain the future of our rural communities. The most uh, readily available partners to many rural schools are institutions of higher education, whether it's a community college or whether it's a rural college like, like Berea, even private colleges like Berea that in Kentucky where DREAMA is. We really want to emphasize how we can leverage education to sustain and even reinvent uh, some rural and small town communities. So really, it comes down to a lack of access. Absolutely. So access to resources, access to the Internet. Um, you know, Internet may be available in, in most schools these days, but there are many rural communities where Internet is not available at home. So that can be a barrier to opportunity as well. And there are many other uh, instances like that. So let's let's shift our focus a little bit to talk to Dreema about Berea College. Dreema, can you describe the college's history? It's very unique. It is. And, and like I said, I'm an alum of the college. So the college was sort of my life changing place. And so it's great to be back here working. So I'm the executive director of Partners for Education here at Berea College. And uh, Partners for Education is a department of the college that really looks outside of the college to the region, the Appalachian region, and realizes that um, we need to be doing all we can throughout Appalachia to increase educational opportunities to ensure that young people are ready for college. And not that doesn't mean ready for Berea College, it means ready for college. 
And you have to do that working with kids starting at birth um, all the way up to career. So our approach is a cradle to career approach. And, you know, I get asked sometimes, why does a small liberal arts college in Kentucky do this type of outreach work? Because we are serving more than 50,000 young people through Partners for Education. Uh, we leverage federal dollars in excess of $40 million a year to do this work. And the answer is Berea is unique. It is a radical institution. When it was founded in 1855, it was founded to educate blacks and whites, men and women together. And that's 10 years before the Civil War. So the radical work of Berea of always ensuring equity uh, and realizing that education can break that cycle of poverty and inequity. And so I like to say that the work that Berea is doing today through Partners for Education, through our people out in the communities doing this work, it is the equity work of today of ensuring that all students, all rural students, um, have the opportunity to achieve a a post-secondary degree. One of the very uh, unique highlights for your student population is student debt. How is that addressed with your with your students? Yeah, so so one of the the very unique pieces of Berea College is that all of our students are provided a tuition scholarship. So we have 1,600 undergraduate students on campus. Uh, None of them pay tuition. And the other interesting piece is that all of those students are low-income students that are high achieving. And Mm -hmm. so students come to Berea, you have to be low income, uh, you have to be high achieving, you work in our uh, labor program, so you actually get career experience while at a liberal arts school. And so uh, students graduate with little or no debt, uh, and the debt they do have is from, if the inter- we encourage um, international studies, we encourage um, things like that, and that's really the students who graduate with debt is usually because of those reasons. Now, does your student population come from specifically Appalachia, or do you pull from around the state, out of state? Where do you, where do you get your students from? So the majority of our students, uh, between 75 and 80%, come from Appalachia. And Appalachia starts up in New York and goes all the way down through Tennessee and Georgia and Alabama. Mm-hmm. Right. So Appalachia, and uh, the majority of the students are Central Appalachian students. or so of the students are international students because we also recognize the the value of that community and the need for uh, global diversity. And that's an incredible piece of our our student population. And then uh, the, the remaining students are students from across the country. Do you have any partnerships in place with other institutes of higher education that you leverage from time to time? So, uh, with Berea, there is actually they're in a partnership with I think five or six other colleges, or um, and most of them are small colleges that actually have labor programs similar to ours. They're different, and some of them charge tuition, but they're all um, institutions where um, the students work. And then through our partners for education work, we work nationally with colleges across the country that are interested in serving and bringing rural students into their um, communities. So, Dreama. Talking specifically about Partners for Education, how do you serve the students and families living in Appalachia today? So I think that the, the key piece is we, we realize that for post-secondary success, you have to start early and you have to work in place and you have to create opportunities for all students in a place. We have a partnership with Save the Children, a U.S. programs that does home visiting of moms and kids zero to three. 
realizing that those students need um, to enter kindergarten ready to learn. We actually created our own model of an early childhood roving bus that would go and visit students. Um, I always say students, but it's actually the parents and the babies um, that really had no access to early childhood education. Because wow. what we were finding is that those families who had no access to any kind of daycare or childcare or Head Start, uh, only 9% were ready for kindergarten. And so we have to do something to that and that geographic isolation piece. When in the elementary level, we work to place academic navigators in schools to work with students that are uh, below grade level because we know students need to be reading and um, doing math at grade level starting at third grade. So there's a big focus on placing academic navigators in schools so that students have that opportunity. We also have modified the community school model. We realize that the schools in rural places are the heart of community. And so how do we, re, re, um, I guess, reclaim schools as the center and the heart of community? We place uh, community school coordinators in the schools to engage with parents and refer them to services and assist the parents in um, making sure they're thriving so the children can thrive. And then once kids get middle school, high school, we place college and career navigators with them um, to really help them start thinking about career. And we know college is the pathway to career. You know, we really do work to ensure that all kids, uh, all young people have an opportunity to achieve a college degree. And that's because data tells us that your quality of life, your um, longevity of life, economic mobility, all of that is greater for folks that get a college degree. Uh, so we have about 500 people on the ground working throughout the region, uh, in schools, in community locations, doing um, work intensely with students to ensure that they have the supports that they need to be successful. Where do you find your personnel that you place in the school community? I think that's a critical lesson for us was that we need to bring residents and it needs to be residents of the communities working in the schools. And so we've opened eight offices throughout the region and we actually hire local people to run the programs and local people to staff the programs because they know their community. We're also building capacity in the community by providing jobs to right. local folks. Right. And how do you identify the schools that are in need of those services? So we've been doing this. I've been doing it for 23 years. And so uh, when I started out, it was in one school and it was a school that we identified based on having a superintendent and principals and teachers that were open to partnering and mm -hmm. that really had a vision that the school was the center of the community and that the school could actually achieve change for kids in the community. And that's the criteria we keep using. So as we've expanded from one school to many, uh, it is through conversations with the leaders of the schools and the communities and determining which places uh, really are interested in partnering and interesting in, in moving the dial for kids. In these lean times, often folks are interested because they see dollar signs. Sure. And so what we found is how do you um, filter that out? The interesting and exciting thing is in Appalachian, Kentucky today, and maybe it's this, this new group of leaders we have, we really see superintendents and principals that are really focused on student achievement and they're really wanting to partner. And I, that's one of the reasons we've expanded. So now we're serving close to 70 school districts and uh, it's an entire region. And so it's been exciting because I do think that the people we have in education here in Kentucky want what's best for their kids. 
Drima, how are those positions funded? You mentioned that you have $40 million in federal funding. Is that where that money goes? Yes, it is. Uh, so we work um, to look at federal grants. And John mentioned we met during the Obama administration. Uh, we were the first rural place to have a promised neighborhood grant, which was built on the Harlem Children's Zone model which wasn't a rural model, that really did cradle to career services. So we really look at federal funding opportunities, uh, bring them into the region and develop a cadre, a network of schools that access those dollars so that the vast majority of our dollars go to people. Because I really believe that there's nothing that can replace a, a person who cares who's working with kids, whether it's through academics or college access or guidance counseling, um, there's no replacement for that. And that's expensive. You know, one of the pieces we struggle with is philanthropy has forgotten about rural America. Uh, only a few cents on a dollar comes from philanthropy goes to rural places. And so we've had to leverage federal dollars. Um, but I think as a nation, we've got to figure out with philanthropy how we can get investment in rural places. Within the last five or 10 years, you're hearing more and more on a national playing field about rural education, rural issues, rural communities. Yeah, and I think, you know, what, what happened with, with us was after the last presidential election, I think uh, rural became more of an interest and, and people started talking about it. I, t I call it our hashtag rural is sexy moment right? Suddenly hashtag <laughs> right. rural is sexy and people are calling and talking to us. Uh, but we're still not seeing the investment in rural, right? And, and I think that that's what the frame that we have to really push on is you can talk about it all you want. Um, we also started seeing folks that did work in non-rural places thinking they just needed to come in and do the work for us. Hmm. And so one of the reasons we started the Rural College Access and Success Summit, which is a national summit, is to show that there's lots of bright spots in rural America. There's lots of communities who know what needs to happen. They just need investment. And I think that that's, that's really why we've stepped into the national work as part of Partners for Education, is that we've seen too often in the past, especially from our Appalachian perspective, of folks coming in thinking they had to do the work for us. And we're like, no, we people here in rural America, we know how to get results if you would fund us and let us do what works. And rural in one place is not rural in another place. Exactly. And, and, and that's the piece of how do we learn from rural places across the country and also show that we can, as regions, work together so a national funder could actually fund a national initiative that could be implemented differently in different rural regions. And Melissa, if I could just add here, uh, you know, the work Dream has done proves this because she had investment from promised neighborhoods and those neighborhoods are still growing and thriving and continuing under local participation. She received the Kellogg grant to start the, the readiness bus project to take early childhood education into remote mountainous areas and to help the parents in those areas. And now she's turned it over to local partners who have been with her along the way and know how to keep it going. So there are instances that show that investment in rural places can have an impact today and tomorrow. Dreema, how do you work with schools and families directly? You've mentioned a couple of the programs that you have in place through the college, but can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, and I think it really comes back to this belief that we have that the local community, the family knows what's best if we listen and if we bring into that a frame of data and a frame of continuous improvement. And so our work, I think, was probably collective impact work before collective impact became a buzzword. Piece of that was listening to parents and figuring out and working with parents to say what would help you and what would help your child. Um, as we've expanded, we've kept that approach. Um, so even though we're working across 70 or so school districts, the actual work in a school might look different because it's the principal of the school that drives the specific school-based interventions. Um, what we bring to the table is saying we have to use data, right? Mm-hmm. We have to get past this piece of doing programs and just doing programs because they feel good or look good. They have right. to be having impact. And that impact needs to be on educational outcomes for kids, right? And so, and we also bring in a frame of research. Let's figure out what works other places. And then maybe you could modify it for this place. You don't have to recreate something. And, and, you know, that's sort of the Harlem Children's Zone model really worked well at Owsley County, Kentucky. But it was only after the folks in Owsley County worked with us to modify it to fit their school district. The third component of that is continuous improvement, right? We have to continually see, is what we're doing serving kids? And the other piece is working with schools to make sure that there's a plan for every child to succeed. You have to have a plan for those kids that are at grade level, above grade level, and below grade level. So it's every child has to succeed. And how do we look at our data uh, to see, you know, are girls doing better than boys? Do we have a racial-based achievement gap? Do we have achievement gap based on how close you are to the school versus how remote your house is, right? So helping schools think through that when they develop their plans. So this next question is for both of you. Why is college so important for students in rural areas, especially when those areas might not have very many employers? In rural areas, if you think about the successful schools and communities, they take an inventory of what their community assets are. Of course, the school, of course, a local college, but what other businesses are there. And then they see, you know, what are the needs of that community? Um, What are they hoping to achieve in the future? And it all requires some level of education and training after high school. That's what kids need to know. You can stay or you can go, but you're gonna need some training and education after high school in today's economy. Even if you're working on a farm, um, farms have become more high tech. The equipment used on those farms has become more high tech. I know a a gentleman who uh, was in the FFA when he was in school, and he learned how to develop an app. And he also had bad allergies. So think about running equipment on a farm if you have bad allergies. He wanted to stay in the cab of his tractor or his piece of equipment and be able to to unload whatever the the crop was hay corn he wanted to be able to do that from inside the cab he developed an app to do that now he needed to know science and computer coding and technology and he went to purdue to learn that and then he came back to contribute to his family farm in his community it can happen that way or you can go to a local community college that has skills and trades and learn how to, to create your own entrepreneurial enterprise in a, in a rural community. These are the messages we have to send to young people so that they know there can be something for them in their community 
and that you know college means many things it means the military it means the community college it means whatever it is you need after high school dream do you have anything to add yeah and i love working with john because we usually end up at the same place but we take different roads to get there right, uh, right. we think differently and uh when we think about why college and why uh, especially given the economic situation here in appalachia today uh, for me, I'm a mom. I have two sons. You know, one's 15 and one's 20. Mm -hmm. I live here in Kentucky and my 20-year-old goes to school in Iowa, right, 10 hours away. And, you know, as somebody who has a college degree, it never occurred to me that my children would not attend college because college opens up doors. Right. And I was never worried about whether Malcolm or Christopher would come back home because I want them to follow their dreams and their dreams might be here in Berea, Kentucky, or it might be somewhere else. Ours is really that equity perspective of Berea College is we want all young people to have roots here in the mountains, but we want them to have the wings to actually explore and be who they want to be. And to do that, you have to really have that college degree. Uh, what we find talking with parents, because there is this stereotype that is we see in our place of poverty here in Appalachia, this idea that parents don't want their kids to go to college because they may leave home. We did a survey of around 7,000 parents of sixth and seventh graders. Over 90% expected their kids to go to college, right? They just didn't know how to do it. They didn't know how to finance it. They didn't know how to plan and help them with it. Parents want their kids to be successful. Um, the other thing we struggle is that sometimes in communities, you have this, I think it's a, an intentional bias, where we are afraid that our community won't survive if kids don't stay and do those low wage jobs. Right, right. Um, you know, and so we try to push that question, right? You know, when I hear people saying, you don't need to go to college to be successful, usually those people who are saying that their kids are in college and even graduate school or law school or medical school. Yes. So for us, it's an equity issue of ensuring that all kids have the same opportunities we'd want for our own children. So, Dreema, how are you working with educators nationally to increase the number of students in rural areas who enroll into a college program and complete a degree? So the first step in this, we, we took it about two years ago, is really starting to build a community of rural educators and college access professionals um, and to start seeing ourselves as a community of rural practitioners. So we uh, decided to do a summit, uh, a learning summit, an exchange of ideas we did our first summit in Lexington, Kentucky. Wasn't sure mm -hmm. if people would show up. And we had over 300 people at the first summit. And they were from 24 states. So not only three, over 300 people, but actually a national audience. And what we heard was, this is the first time we've been in a room where we didn't have to spend five minutes explaining our rural context before we could get to work and brainstorm and start thinking together immediately. The second summit last year, we had 500 folks from over 30 states attend. And we decided that if it really was going to be national and was really going to reflect the, the complexity of rule and how, like you said, mm -hmm. you know, you know, there's many different rural areas in this nation that we needed to take it someplace else. This next April, we're actually taking the summit there to Scottsdale, Arizona. So we're coming to you all in Arizona. And it's because College Success Arizona had been doing work in Arizona thinking about rural areas, doing some research, doing some policy work. And when we, they attended the second summit and at the last session of the day, as we were closing, I'm like, hey, if you want to host us next year, come talk to us. And they were the first people that came and said, hey, we wanna do this in Arizona. 
So April 26th through the 28th, we'll be there in Scottsdale. And we'd love to have Arizona folks attend because, again, um, we need to show and, and bring together as many practitioners as possible. Dreema, have you had any challenges um, to your programming? And if you have, how have you overcome those? Oh, there's so many challenges. Let me think of two. I'll tell you one or two. <laughs> okay. um, I think the first we talked a bit about is that it's hard to find in, in places of persistent poverty like Appalachia, uh, there's, it's hard to find the, the dollars to fund the interventions and the people that are needed. So the right. funding has always been a challenge. I think this, the second piece of it is realizing that before you can get to the academic work and the college planning work, we're living in a world where too many young people don't have hope or they've lost hope. And so our first entry, and we've realized that first we have to start with young people about lifting their own aspirations and building hope. And that was a piece that we had not thought enough about. And so it's realizing that first build their hope and their confidence, their resilience, the growth mindset piece, right? Build that, right. then start with the academic development and the planning. Are there any successes that you want to share with us? So when I think about the successes, I think, as John mentioned, you know, we've seen our program sustain. We've seen local people uh, and local organizations pick up and continue the work after grant funding. And that's, that's a success organizationally. Uh, we've seen numbers increase. You know, I mentioned early childhood uh, inter- kindergarten readiness. Um, we saw mm-hmm. that in one district move from 20% to 42% over the course of three years. It always comes back to the kids, right? And so uh, I think of Katie. Katie was one of our students that worked with us from middle school on. Um, and, you know, she had a lot of struggles to overcome. And she's now a junior at Harvard. And, it, and so it's stories like that where we have to realize that these kids from rural places, these kids who are in kinship care and have struggles can achieve at higher levels than we even know if we can just support them. Well, this question is for both of you. Um, as you look ahead, what do you see happening with rural education across the country? So I've just been very pleased to see more colleges and universities developing creative solutions to reach and support students and families in rural areas. Um, DREMA and Partners for Education at Brea College have done amazing work of bringing people together around the idea of of college access and success for for rural students. And then you just see so much activity, whether it's in education or economic development, that includes uh, rural community colleges around the country. And of course, our land-grant universities are doing amazing work. North Carolina State, for example, has done a lot of work with support services for K-12 schools, even tutoring for students in professional development by distance for teachers. Um, They have school leadership. So it just seems there is momentum around um, supporting rural students and rural schools and higher education becoming that, that support network. Um, Dream, I'm sure you and your colleagues talk about this from time to time. Yeah, and I think what I would add on to that, I totally agree with John's answer. It really is this idea of that collaboration and mm-hmm. that working across different uh, organizations and systems. What I'm also seeing is that schools are also uh, reaching out to communities more and communities are reaching out to schools. 
And so some of our work has really been around helping um, what we call leadership teams and community teams from a place to actually determine what do they want for their children in their place. Uh, so we might be working in uh, Whitley County, Kentucky, and bringing together a group of educators and business people and retirees and parents. And really, it's they are determining what they want for the children in, in the community. And I think uh, five years ago, it would have been folks saying that's the school's job. So I right. think what we're seeing within uh, rural education now is communities and schools um, hand in hand working for what's best and what they want for the children in their community. And you know what that does? That, that creates the momentum and the attraction for more people to, to work together with us. Um, philanthropy included. I know the Panasonic Foundation is now working with rural schools in South Carolina for the first time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, philanthropy can see how rural schools can have an impact and maybe even how partners can come together to bring that to a larger scale. So I just feel like there's some momentum going on. We could see even more of this in the future. John and Dreema, is there anything that we have not covered that you'd like our listeners to know? Personally, I just want people to know where resources are available. Many small schools and principals and superintendents are just trying to make sure the buses uh, pick the kids up every morning and that they get home safely at night. But there are resources. For example, the Rural Education Achievement Program is the only federal program that provides funding by formula to states to support rural schools. Mm -hmm. So if you're not already accessing the Rural Education Achievement Program, please go to ed.gov and search for, for that REAP program that can provide money for technology, for teacher development, even for, for a teacher. So it's very flexible, the Rural Education Achievement Program, and everyone should know about that. Um, also, the United States Department of Ag Agriculture has perhaps the, the largest infrastructure of support for rural schools and colleges across the country. They do everything from provide technology, they have K-12 and higher education funding streams, uh, construction and renovation of facilities is something that they can fund, education technology and distance learning grant programs. There's, they have a wealth of support in just about every state that, um, that rural schools and colleges should be aware of. So contact your USDA state director to find out more about those things. Yeah, and I would add to that, I think um, we have to impact systems and policies uh, to ensure that rural communities receive the, the right investment and funding and that policies support uh, rural schools and rural communities and rural kids. So the National Rural Education Association does a great job by bringing forth uh, and, and, and being that voice to ensure that we're thinking about rural places when we're thinking of federal and state policy. Uh, we work with the Save the Children Action Network. It's called SCAN. And SCAN really works with the zero to five population to ensure that policies and funding is supporting those most vulnerable. So I think it's, it's realizing we have to be doing work in our own communities. We need to be partnering with others. But we also need to think about how do we change systems and structures and impact policy. That's a very good point. And that is so important. And, and our nonprofit sector and our advocates play a big role in that. 
For example, if you've never heard of the Why Rural Matters report, the Rural School and Community Trust just released their biannual report of uh, sort of the challenges, but opportunities in rural communities. And if you take a look at that, they look at education in every state from a rural lens and talk about policy needs and how policy has to be flexible enough to meet the needs of rural schools. So I would say, uh, take a look at the Why Rural Matters report that just came out as well. If anyone wanted more information about Berea College, Dreema, how can they get in contact with you? The easiest way is our website, uh, www.berea.edu. And Berea is B-E-R-E-A.edu. And from that website, they can find Partners for Education, but they can also find out more information about Berea College as a whole. And if anyone was interested in coming to sunny Arizona this April and attending the Rural College Access and Success Summit, how can they get more information about that? So I think the easiest way is to Google Rural College Access and Success Summit, because I can't remember the actual website. (laughs) I know you can get to it from the berea.edu, but I always Google it, and it's the first thing that comes up when you do Rural College Access Summit. And Melissa, I would encourage people to follow Dreama and I. You can follow me on Twitter at Rural, capital E, capital D, at Rural Ed. And, uh, and Dreama's on there as well. Partners for Education is on Twitter. And we'll have information about the summit coming up, you know, regularly. Well, thank you both for being here. I really, really enjoy talking to you and learning more about what's going on in Kentucky. Great. Thanks so much. And hopefully we'll meet you in April. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.